uh, my sister got voted as an all-American cheerleader. She was a gymnast um, growing up, one of those people, if you've ever, ever been to a game, she was the one that would flip up and down the track. She was the one that they would throw up um, and catch and that would always kind of be on the highest levels of the pyramid. And as a sophomore, she went to some competition and they said, hey, you're really good. And they invited her and a bunch of girls to come cheer at the Hula Bowl in Hawaii, which at the time was the college all-star game um, every year. So when I was a freshman, uh, my sister, who was a sophomore, went to Hawaii. And after seeing the pictures that she brought back, after eating the pineapples um, that she brought back, uh, as a freshman in high school, I knew, man, at some point in my life, I'm going to Hawaii. I don't know when it is. Uh, I don't know how it's going to happen. Um, but at some point in my life, I've got to get to Hawaii. I don't know if you've ever been, uh, but after years and years of planning, I got married, wanted to do my honeymoon there. It's too expensive, so we went someplace cheaper. Uh, but after years of savings and planning, um, I finally took several years ago our family to Hawaii, and it was, uh, it was the greatest vacation in the world. If you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. Um, if you haven't been there, it is better than you would imagine um, that it would be. We went, um, and we went surfing one day. We went whale watching one day. We went snorkeling with the, the massive sea turtles. I mean, it was just like the greatest vacation that you could ever imagine in the most perfect place on planet Earth. Um, when I was in Hawaii, I thought, man, if, if, if the Earth is cursed, um, if Hawaii looks like this, what did like the Garden of Eden look like? Because I mean, it was just like the most beautiful place on planet Earth. In our final day of vacation, Daniel and the kids are hanging out at the pool. Um, and I, I didn't travel a lot growing up. As a matter of fact, I never even got on an airplane until I was 20. So I wasn't real sure how travel stuff worked. Um, but I always knew that you needed to check in for your flight the day that you landed at home. So, you know, I'm, I'm supposed to get home to Kansas City from Hawaii on a Saturday afternoon. Um, so Danielle and the kids are at the pool when I said, hey, I'm going to go Saturday morning. I'm going to go check in for our flight. So I called the airlines and said, hey, here's, um, here's my name. And um, I'm checking in for my flight um, to go home to Kansas City. And she said, um, tell, tell me your name again. So I told her my name and she looked and she said, um, sir, your flight was yesterday. Um, you, you, you missed it. Um, and I thought, yeah, well, good for me, extra day in Hawaii. And I was like, okay, you know, so like, um, like when, when can I get on like the next one? How's that work? And she said, well, like in Hawaii, you always fly out a day before you land because you're so many hours behind. So I thought, okay, I've, you know, I've, I've learned a valuable lesson. Um, I get it. So when, when can I get on the next flight? And she said, how many people are you partying? I said, four. And she said, okay, four one-way tickets. Um, when do you want to fly out? I said, like today. Um, she said, okay, four one-way tickets, um, day of. Uh, she said, ooh. And I said, ooh, what's, what's that mean? And she said, that's, um, that's going to be like $2,500. And I thought, oh, man. And she said, per ticket. And I just started crying. Like right there on the phone in the hotel room. I just start crying, sitting on the edge of the bed. And I'm like, I'm never going home. I'm going to get fired from my job. I have to leave my wife and kids. You know, it's like, okay, I think I could buy maybe one ticket. But I don't have like 10 grand for a ticket. And as I'm crying, she goes from like airline helper to crisis hostage negotiator. Because I think she could tell like I was going to do something crazy. She's like, sir, sir, just hang on, sir. And I was like, this is my first time. And I don't know what I'm doing. I don't have $10,000. And she's like, listen, we'll... Well, just give, give me a moment. Let me, let, me see, let me see what I can do. So she got a supervisor on the phone. To make a long story short, she said, listen, I can get you on standby four people together. It's going to be an extra couple days. You're going to have to stay there a couple days. I said, okay. She said, I can fly you into Phoenix, and you're going to have to stay a day in Phoenix. Then I can finally get you home to Kansas City. And I was like, as long as it's free, just whatever you can do, um, I need to get home. My trip in paradise at the moment that I realized I did not know how to book travel, um, it, it went bad. Like everything went bad in an instant. I went from the greatest vacation on planet Earth to thinking I was never going home in an instant. 
And some of you are living in a season of your life like that right now. Like you, you were in a season of life where everything was going well. Family was good. Your health was good. Your job was good. Your finances were good. Your kids were successful. Like you were living through a season of life where you were just kind of on cruise control and everyone looked at you and said, man, that guy is blessed. That gal is blessed. Man, that family, like they just, everything they do, it seems like God touches. Like everything was going right. You were enjoying this incredible season of life and then everything changed. What do you do when everything changes? What do you do when you're sailing through life and on the other end of the phone, you find out you might not ever get back to the place you thought God had designed you to be. That is what this series is going to talk about the next six weeks at our church, Shipwrecked. What do you do when kind of everything goes wrong? How do you pick up the pieces and put them back together? If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Acts chapter 21, because this will be kind of our text the next several weeks. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers have some. They're going to go down the aisles and offer them to you. If you want a Bible, just wave at our ushers, um, and they've got one that you can use today. If you don't have a Bible, write your name in this one and keep it. It's our gift to you. We want you to have it. But the next several weeks, we're going to study about the shipwreck of the Apostle Paul. And what we're going to look at together through this series is we're going to look at a life that results in a shipwreck, but that doesn't end in a shipwreck. We're going to look at the life of the Apostle Paul and see that sometimes in our life, everything goes wrong, but everything doesn't have to stay wrong. And we're going to see what happens when the storms of life overtake us for a season, but ultimately our life ends in hope. Now, the cool thing about this series is is, I mean, we're really going to be living biblical history. Next week, Bob Cornuke's going to be here. You heard Pastor Ryan talking about him. He and his expedition team believe they have found the four anchors of the shipwreck of the Apostle Paul that we'll read about in Acts chapter 27 and 28. If you have not already, make plans to be here and invite somebody. We've got these little invite cards that we've got at our next steps table and kind of on the tables as you leave. Grab three or four and put them in someone's hands. Uh, we're going to talk to him not only about the shipwreck of Paul, we're going to talk to him about Noah's Ark. He's taken expeditions to look for that. We're going to talk to him a little bit um, about Mount Sinai. He's got some incredible evidence that points to he and his team actually finding the location of the biblical Sinai where Moses received the Ten Commandments. It's going to be a fascinating Sunday. You want to be here. You want to invite someone to be with you who may have trouble believing some of the biblical narrative a little bit. I I think he'll give them hope that maybe they can research a little deeper than what they've had. But the reason for this series is not for people who don't believe the Bible to have hope. The reason for this series is for people who have believed the Bible their entire life, have tried to follow God their entire life, but who have found themselves in a really difficult season. The purpose of this series is to give you hope that what you've always believed is not wrong and what you're starting to question is still real. And the blessings that maybe you've given up hope on ever receiving are still out there. The purpose of this series, as we teach you how to put together the pieces of a broken life, is that that this series will end in your life having hope again, even in the midst of maybe the most difficult storms that you've ever gone through. Now, as we walk to Acts chapter 21, let me give you a quick review. If you haven't pulled out your sermon notes yet, do that so you can follow along. Let me walk you up to the storm that the Apostle Paul is going to experience today in Acts chapter 21. As we enter Acts 21, we know that Paul had been planting churches and doing missionary work for 11 years. 
So for 11 years, the Apostle Paul had been on the road. He'd been planning churches. He'd been doing missions work. He'd been going back and forth from home over the course of 11 years. He was returning in Acts chapter 21 from a four-year mission trip. So he had been gone the length of time that your college student leaves as a freshman and graduates as a senior, or maybe your college student took five or six or seven or eight years, but the time, uh, the time that it should take for someone to leave for college and graduate. He'd been gone for four years, and he didn't come home for Christmas break and for summer break. And he had brought back from this four-year mission trip, this massive offering that he had collected from all the churches he had planted to help people that had been negatively impacted by a famine that was in Israel. And the first thing he did was give them this money, and then he testified about this huge move of God. He basically said over the last four years, this has happened, and it's been incredible. So 11 years on the road doing ministry, four years gone consecutively, hadn't been home yet, coming to bring a massive offering with a mass to tell about a massive move of God. And what we find in Acts chapter 21 as we enter it is that all that Paul did, all that Paul told about, all that Paul celebrated was very quickly dismissed by the group that he was coming to talk to. And here's what we know. When, when people can dismiss the good things in life, and only focus on the negative, the storm clouds of life gather really, really quickly. And maybe that's where you're at this morning. Maybe you can't remember anymore the good things in life that at one point God did for you because there's just been so much negative. Maybe you can't remember the good reasons of why you married your husband or your wife because recently it's just been so negative that you just can't find the good anymore. Maybe your, your job, you just can't find anything good about your job anymore. Or maybe the, the time off the job that you've experienced resulted in a little bit of unemployment and you had hope for a little bit. But maybe now you just believe you'll never get a job again. Maybe that health prognosis that you believe would be for a season you now fear is going to be for a lifetime. Maybe the financial hardship that you said, you know, we're, we're going to come out of this is getting darker, not lighter. Maybe you, like the Apostle Paul, are in a season where anything good has just kind of, it's just been gone. It's been forgotten. And all you can do is see the negative. If that's where you are, you need to realize the storm clouds of life are coming to you quick and and you might be getting ready to head into a tumultuous time if you're not anchored firmly to Jesus. Now, this is where the Apostle Paul was. Look at Acts chapter 21. We're going to start in verse 17 and go through the first half of verse 20. And I want to walk you through this storm that Paul was entering. And we're going to learn kind of lesson one of six the next six weeks, how to experience hope and how to lean into hope even in the midst of difficult times. It says, when we arrived at Jerusalem, finally home after four years, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James. That's Jesus' little brother who wrote the book of James. And all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. But then they said to Paul, now I want to stop right there. Because as we kind of read into this text, we're going to see what happened to the Apostle Paul often happens in our life. Paul was coming off this mountaintop experience. Paul was kind of in a season of great ministry, great life, great celebration. But then if you look at point number one, every now and then in our life, then happens. Then happens. Now, some of you who maybe aren't as spiritual as others of you may have looked at this and thought another word went into that blank because that's kind of how you refer to things when life just falls apart. Maybe you're like Forrest Gump who was running across America and a guy was running beside him and he was talking to him and asking questions and as Forrest was running, he stepped in this big pile of dog poop and the guy was like, man, you just stepped in a huge pile of dog poop and Forrest was like, it happens. And the guy's like, you know what, poop? And he's like, sometimes. And it like get the idea to create this phrase that goes, 
on this shirt to make millions of dollars. But that didn't happen. We're just saying for this context, then happens. Let me show you what I mean by then happening. Look at verses 19 through 25. I'm going to have you circle a word, and then I'm going to ask you a question. It says, Paul greeted them. He reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministries. When they heard this, they praised God. But then, circle the word then, because everything has changed. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed. And all of them are zealous for the law. They've been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They're going to certainly hear that you've come, so do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know there's no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we've written to them that our decision, about our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. Now, I want to stop right there. Because Paul returns, he's been gone for four years. Paul comes back after four years doing a job that the church sent him to do, which he had done well. He brought back in, probably in terms of today's money, brought back probably hundreds of thousands of dollars that would serve thousands of people who were hurting in Israel. He told them all that God did, and they were like, okay, that's great, but let us, you know, that's great, thanks, but let us tell you what you need to do now. And like the problem got shifted from all the good to all the bad very, very fast. Let me ask you a question about your life. When was your then? When was your then that began this season that you're struggling through? Here's what I mean by that question, when was your then? When was that moment when your focus shifted just slightly? The conversation changed and the sun never seemed to poke through the storm clouds anymore. And the hope seemed to be something that was not just in the distant future, but maybe it was in a place far, far away that didn't exist anymore. When was then in your marriage when you just thought, it's not going to work? It's just never going to be the way that it used to be. And you begin to try to figure out an exit strategy or just a strategy for a mediocre marriage. When was then in your parenting? When you looked at your teenager and you just thought they, they don't love God and it's too late to change it now. When was then in your work? When you realized you'd gone to college, maybe even gotten a few master's degrees for a job that you looked up from at 30 or 35 and thought, I don't even like this. And I got to do this now the next 20, 25 years before I can retire? When was then in your relationships or friendships where you had this great friendship that you stepped away from and now like it's just the most toxic thing in your life and you're thinking, how did this happen? When was then in your church or ministry life where you used to be really engaged and you used to love church and you used to love church people and you'd kind of do anything for Jesus and then something happened and now you're really withdrawn? When was your then with your self-image where you just said, I'm just going to let my weight go? When discouragement lingered into depression and you just, just quit trying? When was then in your finances? That critical moment where the slide downhill became so fast And so furious that you just thought, we'll never recover financially. And the generosity in your heart, it just went away. And the giving to other people, it just went away. And you began to wake up every morning and go to bed every night worried about your finances. When was your then when you realized that habit had become an addiction? 
and you didn't have the power anymore not to engage in what you were engaging in. When was your then? Because if you can answer the question, when was then, you can realize when the storm clouds begin to gather in your life. And you cannot go back to that moment and reset, but if you can identify that moment, you, you have taken the first step to finding hope in your future. You see, Paul got his blessing bubble popped quickly and rudely, and it was getting ready to get worse. He showed up after four years so excited to give money to the church, so excited to give testimony to the church, so excited to tell what was happening in the Gentile world, and they were like, okay, that's great, Paul. Then let us tell you what we've got going on. There's a lot of Jews getting saved too, and they don't like what you're doing. Um, and we appreciate the money you've brought, but we actually need you to give some more offering in this area. And probably the most insulting line in the entire passage is verse 25, where they said, as for the stuff about Gentiles, yeah, we wrote them a letter. Kind of like, we're not worried about your ministry. We're not worried about the things you're worried about. We're not focused on the things you're focused on. I know you just spent four years leading a bunch of people to Jesus. They really don't matter. We already wrote them a letter. We need you to get focused on the thing we're focused on now. It's like, wow, then... Everything went wrong. And the reality is when the circumstances and consequences of our lives cloud up quickly, we can lose hope fast. Now, the Apostle Paul didn't, but he could have. And some of you at first didn't lose hope when things began to shift negatively. But you're getting close to. And the cool thing about this series is the series title is Shipwreck, but the series purpose is hope. It's how to put together the pieces of a broken life. It's how to rebuild what has been torn down into what could even be better. Because the reality, when the Apostle Paul looked at this, he said, you know, I'm going to take these negative things and I'm just going to keep living the way God wants me to live. But number two, sometimes life falls apart even when we're doing everything right. So Paul came back and he experienced a bad day. But he said, I'm just going to keep doing the right thing. But it kept going wrong. Look at verses 26 through 32. Even when Paul took bad news well and said, I'm just going to keep moving forward spiritually, things continued to get worse. It says, the next day Paul took the men and he purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offerings would be made for each of them. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and they seized him shouting, fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law in this place. And besides, he's brought Greeks into the temple and he's defiled this holy place because only Jews were allowed in certain parts of the temple. Verse 29, they'd previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul. They assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple, even though he hadn't. Verse 30, the whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and, they immediate, and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Now, Paul's bad day had just gone from bad to worse. And here's all that Paul did in, in response to bad Here's what Paul did. He ignored the offensive actions towards him. The people who should have been praising him 
were kind of manipulating him. The people who should have said, there's a lot of people asking questions about you, but we told him you were legit. They said, there's a lot of people asking questions about you, and we're going to kind of let you figure it out. He ignored the offensive actions towards him, and he thought, okay, I'll keep moving forward spiritually. Secondly, he, he went the extra mile to serve people. They said, we want you to take these people you've never met. We want you to take them into the temple. We want you to do an offering. We want you to kind of do this differently so everyone will think good of you. He's like, all right, I'll go the extra mile and serve people. Thirdly, he gave extra offering in addition to what he brought. He brought probably hundreds of thousands of dollars back. And they were like, well, if you just give a little more for these four people to have their sacrifice, then people will accept you. Okay, I'll give a little more. He was super patient. He probably wanted to go straight to the temple. We find out he was coming back to Jerusalem because of a vow that he had made. But they said, take this vow instead, wait an extra week. So he was super patient. And what did all this great spiritual maturity get him? It nearly got the life beaten out of him. That's what happened. And that's where some of you are spiritually. You took the first shot spiritually and you kind of shook it off and you got back up. And people have been offensive towards you and you've taken it and you've moved forward. And people have asked you, even when you're tired and burdened, they've asked you to keep serving and you've kind of gone the extra mile with people and relationships and those you're trying to help. You you gave a little more. You prayed a little more. You read a little more. You really dug in and thought, you know, if I just do a little extra, maybe things will get better. You were super patient. You said, God, I can't figure out why this happened. But if I wait a little longer, God, I know there's a reward at the end of the rainbow. You were super patient and you show up today and you said, let me tell you what all of that has resulted in, Christian. I feel like I'm getting the life beaten out of me spiritually. I took the first shot. I turned the other cheek. I went the extra mile. I did all that stuff. It has not gotten any better. So let me ask you this question. Is this the point we quit? I mean, is this the point we quit? When it gets bad and we take the bad and keep moving forward, but even in moving forward, it keeps getting worse, is this when we just quit? Got to be honest. I read about the Apostle Paul, and I think the Apostle Paul should have stood up and said, you know what, forget y'all. I ain't ever coming back to Jerusalem. I'm coming back to Israel. You, you all can go to the other place, and I'm trying to get people to go. I, I'm out. Like, I, if Paul would have said that, I would have said, like, good for him. I, you know, I totally agree, and thank you for the permission to do that when that happens in my life. I mean, that's, like, that's how I would have looked at this text of Scripture. Is this where we all quit? Tried once, then we tried harder, but it still didn't get better. Well, what, do we, what do we do now? The Apostle Paul had two options. He could look at his life and look at what had happened over the last season of his life that was negative in response to pretty faithful life and quit, Or he could look towards the future and try to find God in the midst of the storm and try to find hope. And here's the reality of life. We can learn from looking back, but we can only live by looking forward. And some of you, instead of looking back to learn, you've looked back to live and you've stopped living. You literally have stopped in the storm And instead of marching through the other side of it, you have chosen to remain in the storm just looking back trying to figure out what you can learn or trying to figure out what went wrong or trying to figure out where God disappeared or trying to figure out why God didn't show up. You have literally, instead of just moving through the storm to the next phase of life and trying to find hope in the future, you've just stopped. You cannot live unless you keep moving forward looking for hope. And as hard as that is to do, as we look forward... Biblically, we're going to see that God is aware of us in the midst of our storms. Because that would be the question that certainly the Apostle Paul had. 
That would be the question certainly that you and I have. Is is God even aware of this? Does he even care? The God I read about in the Bible who cares so much about people. The God I read about in the Bible that rewards faithfulness. The God I read about in the Bible that rewards sacrifice. The God I read about in the Bible that, that rewards righteousness. Christian, I've done all those things and those, th- those haven't happened. My life has ended up kind of wrecked and I'm on a shore now and I, I feel like I'm in isolation. I'm on some deserted island all by myself and I, I don't know the way forward. It's in that moment that we have to center ourselves spiritually again and realize God is aware of us even in the midst of our storms. But we've got to change a mindset to move through the storm. We can either focus on the perceived absence of God. We can keep asking, where is God? How could God leave me? Why didn't he do anything? How could God abandon me? Or we can pursue the presence of God. I know that it's out there. I know he's aware of me. Moses said, God is near you. I know I can reach up and grab him. I can, I can focus on the perceived absence of God or I can pursue the presence of God, but I can't do both at the same time. I can't lament the fact that God is gone while at the same time pursue him with all my heart. And if I try to live in kind of 50-50 world, all I end up is, is in spiritual discouragement. And the Apostle Paul took this situation as bad as it had become and he tried to find the presence of God and the purpose of God in his situation and he realized one of his greatest ministry opportunities had just come to him. Look at Acts chapter 21 verse 33 and we'll read into Acts chapter 22 now. It says, The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He was getting beat to death so they arrested him. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing, some another. Since the commander couldn't get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached his steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, get rid of him. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied. He couldn't believe that Paul could communicate with him. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? Paul answered, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. After receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and he motioned to the crowd. And when they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became really quiet. Let me tell you what happened, folks. Paul was in the midst of the most chaotic situation that you could even imagine. The city was in an uproar. They had rushed the temple courts. They had thrown him out of the temple courts, kind of the edge of the Antonia Fortress where I have stood, and there were a large set of steps going up, and they were trying to kill him there before they got him safely to prison. Some people were shouting that he had done one thing. Some people were shouting that he had done another thing. The Roman general who went to get him thought that he was an Egyptian terrorist. And as he's carrying him away, Paul says, hey, can I ask you a question? And the Roman general realized that he wasn't speaking Egyptian. So, well, wait a minute. I, why are you speaking Greek? Aren't you, like, aren't you Egyptian? Aren't you a terrorist that led 4,000 people? And Paul's like, no, that, no, I'm Jewish. Like, does anyone even know what's going on? Like, Paul, you know, Paul had to be thinking about that. They're mad because they said, I brought a guy in here that I didn't even bring. You arrested me thinking that I was totally somebody else. Everyone's trying to kill me. Can we just call time out for a minute? And the guy's like, yeah. So Paul stands up on the steps with this angry mob that wants to kill him. And it says he spoke to them in Aramaic, which was their native tongue. 
it was a language that only the Hebrew people 2,000 years ago spoke. And when they heard him speaking their language, a language given to them by God so that they could know the things of God, when they heard him speak to them in their language, everybody got real quiet because they wanted to hear what he had to say. Now that's a picture of our world. We live in a world that is in chaos emotionally. We live in a world that's in chaos spiritually. Some people think one thing. Other people think other things. Some people are saying one thing. Some people are saying another. Everyone thinks that there's a different way to know anything and everything. And everyone's just trying to figure out what's going on. And if somebody could stand up in the midst of chaos and say, Listen, I've experienced hope in the midst of a storm. Everybody would get real quiet real quick. Because everyone speaks that language. Why do you think politicians use words like change to rally people? Because we live in a world that's not satisfied with the way things are right now. Why do you think politicians use the word hope to rally people? Because people are living without hope. And everyone speaks the language of hope. Everyone speaks the language of change. And when Jesus steps into a situation, into a storm and says, I can fix this everyone gets quiet real fast. And we notice the Apostle Paul, when the Apostle Paul began to speak, when we somehow endure what we're going through and one day are able to speak about it, guess what? Your shipwreck is going to allow you to speak a language that people want to listen to. Why? Because we live in a world of chaos. We live in a world of disorder. We live in a world where people will look to anyone for hope, to anyone for change. And if we will be able to experience hope in the midst of our shipwreck, if we will be able to experience peace in the midst of our storm, and we can begin to communicate about that, people will listen because people are trying to figure out if they're ever going to have peace in this lifetime, if they'll ever experience hope in this lifetime. But your hope and your peace will not come if your life is not anchored to Jesus. You see, the reason, the reason the Apostle Paul could have so much hope is because the presence of God was with him, but the purpose of God was his pursuit. And Paul, even on his worst day that had just gotten even worse, stood up and said, I'm confident today in the presence of my God and in, and in the purpose of my God. And as long as I'm anchored in that, I have a message for you. And the people were willing to listen to that message. And Paul's shipwreck situation was actually going to result in his greatest opportunity to show his God to the world. Why? Because he wasn't going to make it through a situation without total reliance on God. So Paul said, one of two things is going to happen here. I'm going to totally trust in God and he's going to let me down. Or I am totally going to trust in God and he's going to come through. And if he does, I will have a story about how total reliance on God gets me through the worst storms and shipwrecks that I'll ever experience. The Apostle Paul actually said it this way in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Paul said, God said to me, my grace is sufficient. Grace means gift sufficient, means good enough or enough. Literally, God said, my gift to you, it's it's enough. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. You know, the reality is the less strength that we realize we have, the more power we will ask God to add to our lives. It's the strong Christian who never gets in a posture and asks God for help because they have everything they need. It's the weak Christian who says, God, without you, I'm nothing. 
You know, it's, it's funny, we actually teach the weak Christianity philosophy. If you grew up in church, you grew up singing a song called Jesus Loves Me. It says, Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. We are, we are. How come as adults we won't claim that without feeling insecure? How come as adults we aren't willing to say, I'm so spiritually weak? I have so many questions. I struggle to trust. I have doubts. I've got sinful things in my life that I actually pursue. How, how come as Christians, we teach our kids to say, take a posture of weakness because then God can be strong for you. But as adults, we say, I'm strong spiritually. I read my Bible seven times this week. I prayed every day this week. I memorized a verse. I am close to God. You see, God can't add extra power to someone who says, I'm full spiritually. But the weak Christian, God says, I'll just keep giving power to the weak Christian. And the reality is only the admitted, only the admittedly weak Christian who realizes their life is being driven off course by the current storm of their life will realize God's help because they're the only ones who will ask for God's help. Our band is going to come to the stage now and they're going to prepare to sing a, a new song that we want to teach our church as you just kind of reflect on what I've been teaching you. But here, here's kind of the thought of where we want to start this series and push it the next six weeks. You and I are going to have to learn to drop a spiritual anchor to connect to God if we're going to get through some of the storms in our life. Some of us are anchored to our bank account, and as long as it's strong, we feel immovable. Some of us are are anchored to our health, and as long as our health is strong, we feel immovable. Some of us are anchored to our marriage or our families, and as long as our marriage and our family are strong, we feel immovable. Some of us are are anchored to our friendships, and as long as our friendships are are good, we feel immovable. But the first chance that anything begins to go wrong, all of a sudden we feel like everything is out of control. The only anchor that holds your life in place when everything goes wrong is Jesus. And if we would learn to set our anchor on God and say, God, even when the wind is blowing, when the waves are crashing, when everything goes wrong, I'll be anchored to you and put all my trust in you and look for my hope in you. Only when that is the reality do we find peace and hope in the midst of a storm. So what problem today do you need to drop an anchor down to God and say, God, I'm going to need you to, I'm going to need you to hold me in the midst of this one. My marriage, my health, my finances, my friendships, my relationships, my job. God, I'm going to, I'm going to need to anchor this one in you because I'm, I'm not really sure what course this is going to send my life on because it doesn't feel stable, but God, I'm going to anchor this in you. As our band comes and sings this song about our anchor holding, would you consider whatever storm you're facing today, would you consider placing an anchor in God and saying, God, I'm, I'm going to lean into you more than I ever have in life for hope, for peace, for stability. Will you just, in, a, in kind of a, a spirit of prayer, but listening to this song and the words of this song, would you consider where God has you and where you need to place your anchor today?
day is 